So I low crawled out with my medical ruck to attend to him, provide aid. Some Panamanians that were in a Jeep saw me and saw us, started driving towards us and firing AK-47 rounds out there. I was wounded in the hand at that time. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active-duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Major General Dr. Philip Volpe to Wardox. Dr. Volpe received his medical degree from the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine and then trained and is board certified in family medicine. He's held numerous strategic leadership positions in Army medicine, including commanding general at the Army Medical Department Center and School in San Antonio, Texas. General Volpe's had multiple operational medicine assignments within the Special Operations Community and the 18th Airborne Corps. He has participated in a variety of deployments to include operations involving Mogadishu, Panama, and Haiti. Dr. Volpe is an Army Medicine Senior Leader Mentor and serves on the board of the Special Operations Medical Association, as well as AMSIS, the Society of Federal Health Care Professionals. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. On this episode of Wardox, we're privileged to speak with retired Major General Dr. Philip Volpe. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Proud to be here. Thank you. Dr. Volpe, what led you to pursue a career in military medicine? Well, I entered the military because I needed money for medical school. So I applied for the Health Profession Scholarship Program, was accepted. I didn't really know anything about the military. Once I was in, though, first several assignments gave me a different respect and understanding of the military. And I sort of seemed to find my niche, a sense of belonging, the camaraderie, teamwork, the sense of fulfillment of serving with soldiers that serve our nation. The way I like to remember it the best is I learned that spending a career doing honorable work with honorable people is what really motivated me. So that's what made me the decision to uh, make it a career. So you trained in family medicine, and after that, you served as a family medicine residency program director at Fort Bragg. And after that, you went to the 82nd Airborne Division as division surgeon. How did that experience shape your decision to pursue additional operational medicine assignments? And what were some of your memorable experiences in that role? I had a sequence of multiple impacts. There wasn't any one thing that got me into operational medicine. But when I was at the residency program at Fort Bragg as a young, newly promoted major, pursuing the thing that I wanted to do in my career at family medicine was teaching and becoming a residency director. My residency director was Lieutenant Colonel Daryl Poor, a now retired Major General Daryl Poor, a fellow family physician who sort of took me under his wing, a mentorship, and got me involved in supporting and augmenting special operations organizations as part of my operational exposure, if you will. So I supported units like Delta Force, other units, special mission units, and Joint Special Operations Command. And I was also profist professional officer filler system aligned to deploy with the 82nd Airborne Division because I was airborne. I had done some airborne training. 
And I used to go to, I love teaching. I used to go to the field. I got to train medics. And what I found was at the hospital at Fort Bragg, there were many other physicians who really were avoiding going to the field with their units. So I be, they began requesting me more and more. And so I would go to the field and train medics actually quite often. And I loved it and enjoy it. And I also got to be exposed to line leaders and line officers at that time. That made me very much attracted to operational medicine and what I call the real army, why we wear the uniform, why we serve, why military medicine exists is because of operational medicine. You were involved in Operation Just Cause, which was to depose Manuel Noriega in Panama in 1989. And you were deployed with the 2nd Ranger Battalion. Tell us about your role and any interesting stories you have from that time. Yeah, I have two interesting stories, but uh, my role basically as an augmentee, the Joint Special Operations Command, during Operation Just Cause, 2nd Ranger Battalion was jumping into a remote airfield called Riojato Airfield in Panama on an airborne seizure operation. So I was airborne. I was augmenting them. I was augmenting them because... They weren't going to be able to get medical evacuation and casualties evacuated from being wounded there for up to eight hours. So they wanted to beef up their battalion aid station with additional trained physicians as first responders. So I jumped in with the 2nd Ranger Battalion. It was an honor to be able to do that. It was scary. It was my 13th jump in the military (laughs) doing a combat jump, but I did it and I was on the ground there. So the two stories that have to do with that, that's also where I received the Purple Heart because after we cleared the airfield, I noticed a ranger out there with a fractured fever from the jump and he was in the middle of the airfield in Riojato. So I low crawled out with my medical ruck to attend to him, provide aid. Some Panamanians that were in a Jeep saw me and saw us, started driving towards us and firing AK-47 rounds out there. I was wounded in the hand at that time. Some rangers came out from both sides of the airfield and neutralized those Panamanians and that Jeep. So I then was safe, continued doing care, dragged that ranger off the airfield, just wrapped my hand up, continued doing medical care. We had people that needed chest tubes, other resuscitative measures that we did. And then when they, when we were able to land a C-130 to evacuate, those casualties, I went with them to our joint casualty collection point at the Air Force Base there in uh, uh, near Panama City. And at that point, I got seen, they did treatment on my hand, realized it was infected badly all the way up to my elbow because I hadn't had any treatment for like eight hours on, on that hand. So I had to be also be evacuated back to the States at that time. Because I was going back to the States, this is the second story, because I was going back to the States, I ended up being the medical escort for the handover, the arrest and handover of a guy named Luis Del Cid. He was Manuel Noriega's second in command, and he was captured by special operations forces, turned over to the DEA to be imprisoned in the United States. Whenever they do a turnover of custody of any precious cargo or arrests that are made, they always have medical support with them to do a physical exam and make sure they don't have anything where they could kill themselves or claim they were beat up or died en route or something like that. So I went as a medical escort back to the United States with the DEA. So when you're a medical provider and you're preparing for a combat jump 
in an area like this where you're seizing an airfield, what are the things that you're planning for as you're getting ready to do that? And take us through a little bit of what happened in that experience. So the planning, the planning really comes in from the training that you, right? So on the military side, I had to be able to shoot, move, and communicate just like any other soldier, right? You have to be able to protect yourself, full gear, Kevlar helmet, body armor, your rucksack, your water, your magazine, a firearm for your own self-defense to defend your patient. So, and, and able to communicate on a radio to give status and updates and let people know where you are. So the airborne operation training, you have to do airborne operations with units. So you understand assembly points, how to maneuver, all of that stuff. Soldiering skills, be able to shoot, move, and communicate so you don't become a liability. And then all the medical skills you got to be able to do and medical supplies you got to bring to be able to resuscitate casualties, which is what your job is when you go in. So there's a lot of aspects that sort of all come together for what we call readiness in the military, right? Personal readiness, individual readiness, able to do your job, best of your ability in a dangerous environment without being a liability to the unit that you're deploying with. So most of our listeners may be familiar with the movie Black Hawk Down, and you were the task force ranger surgeon in Somalia supporting Operation Restore Hope during the Battle of Mogadishu. Can you take us through what happened during that event from your perspective of providing medical care support? Yeah, that was the uh, signature event for me that convinced me the military is how I wanted to spend my career as a physician. That particular operation, we got called by the United States National Command Authority to support United Nations to go in and arrest international criminals, Somalis, who were being charged by the United Nations for international crimes and war and uh, violations against humanity because they had been killing peacekeepers and holding hostage some non-governmental organization there. So the mil that's how the military got involved on the combat operation of Black Hawk Down. So we were going there to do raids to arrest bad guys to turn over to the U.S. for, tr for their trial, to have a trial. We knew that was a very dangerous operation because we were on their territory, halfway around the world, Mogadishu, Somalia, a third world urban environment. We had a task force of about 450 operators from the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps, Special Operations Forces. And I had a large medical element that I was taking with me who were first responders. So what I had to do was get on the ground bring my medical people with me, first responders with that came with organic, with the units that we were deployed with, organize them as a team, and then liaison with the U.S. hospital that was already deployed there, as well as other medical resources belonging to other commands that were there. It was a very dangerous environment. What we were preparing for is the possibility of a mass casualty situation because when that happens, it's too late to prepare. So that's what we were preparing for. It was We were highly vulnerable to a mass casualty situation. It ended up on 3-4 October of 1993. Lo and behold, one of our helicopters gets shot out of the air. While returning from strike site, the raid that we did, and then the subsequent firefights, rescue operation, we ended up having 18 people killed in action and 86 wounded in about a two-hour time period who needed emergency resuscitation 
and in in Mogadishu, and 34 of those 86 that were wounded needed emergency surgery, resuscitative surgery in Mogadishu before getting evacuated on a nine-hour flight to Landstuhl, Germany, where they could get a higher-level medical care, intensive care unit, critical care support. That paid off. Our training and preparation and plans paid off, and I truly felt very proud with the surgeons we deployed with the Special Operations Task Force, inserting them into the hospital to convert that hospital from a community hospital to a casualty receiving hospital, a combat hospital. Magnificent work by the medical personnel. I was so proud of what they did to save lives that day. More li- we would have lost many more lives had they not been able to do what they did. So oftentimes those mass casualty events are the ones that make the national news. What do you think are the things you learned from Mogadishu in treating these this massive casualty situation that you would give lessons and your experience to those listening that may be preparing for the next mass casualty event in the Department of Defense? Three things come to mind from a strategic standpoint for medical operation. One of them is the worst thing you could do in a mass casualty is not plan and prepare for a mass casualty and practice it with your people. That is when it becomes invaluable. All mass casualties are chaotic, but you can manage chaos and lead people through chaos. When you don't have a mass casualty plan and people haven't rehearsed and prepared, that chaos turns into panic and you can't manage and lead people through panic. And you don't be, you're not able to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people in an organized fashion. So the most important thing is planning, preparing, for the mass casualty and practicing it and rehearsing it. The second lesson learned was the importance of liaison. Many of the medical resources in that theater did not belong to the Ranger Task Force. I learned when you deploy from a medical standpoint, you want as many friends as possible when you deploy. Those who fail to liaison to leverage the other medical resources are in it by themselves and you it's insufficient to decrease morbidity and mortality to the greatest extent possible. So you want to make friends with everyone in liaison. During this mass casualty, what became invaluable was that the Swedes, the Swedish military, was one of the units supporting the UN. They brought their own hospital. We used them during the mass casualty surgery on U.S. personnel. The German contingent in the UN had a German hospital there. Their standards of care and scope of care for surgery and orthopedics was in concert with what our standards of care are. We use them during the mass casualty because when you have 34 people that need emergency surgery and you only have four operating room capacity, some people have to wait to get into the operating room. So we were able to leverage the German and the Swedish military surgical capabilities to treat some of our casualties. So liaisoning and partnering with other, whether they're host nation, allied, or other military medical units is critical when you deploy. And then I would say the third thing, which was one of the most memorable things to me in relationships with line officers, I realized that the United States had a whole bunch of medical organizations who were all under different commands and control and units out there. And I realized that they weren't under my control. So During the mass casualty, the raids, excuse me, during the raids, which might result in a mass casualty, 
I didn't have the agility to move medical resources around the area, only the resources that were organic to us, and I moved. So I went to General Garrison, our commander for the Ranger Task Force, and I said, sir, I'm not in control of medical resources that are on other medical teams that belong to different commands here. If I could get control of those, operational control of those during our raids, I could shift resources rapidly to rapidly changing situations on where they need to be. He made a call to the CENTCOM commander, and lo and behold, at a MacDill Air Force Base came a directive to all U.S. forces in Somalia that during our raids, all medical, all U.S. medical forces came under my operational control. And that, to me, also shows the importance of understanding what I say line speak or communicating with line commanders because I made it simple, direct, straightforward, and used operational terms in order to let my commander and advise my commander what I needed to best serve him as his medical advisor. And he made it happen. I got to tell you, I was shocked that that actually happened at the time, but I was so thankful that it happened. And I don't think it would have happened had I not been able to speak in those terms and communicate with a line commander in their terms rather than medical speak. So previously, we talked to Lieutenant General retired Carlton, former Air Force Surgeon General, and he said that he was in communication with you after that particular incident in Mogadishu. And you had a lot of critically ill, injured patients that needed to be flown out. Can you tell us about how that shaped the future of critical care in the air? There's a whole bunch of other lessons learned at the uh, tactical level and also the operational level. Uh, I talked about the strategic level lessons learned, but one of the operational lessons learned was the Air Force at that time, their doctrine was that they could only move stable patients. So they had very austere medical care and support on their fixed-wing aircraft to fly people on a nine-hour flight from Mogadishu to Lonstool through uh, Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. The lesson learned was I had to take medical people out of the hospital in Mogadishu, as well as ventilators and medical equipment, because we had patients that were post-op and still not fully stable. They were critical care patients, ICU patients that had to be moved, but the Air Force wasn't prepared to move them with their doctrine. So I had to remove resources from the theater to fly back with them. Many who never came back to Mogadishu in time for ensuing operations for support. So I depleted medical resources in the theater to support the evacuation. So one of the lessons learned was we need a capability where that aircraft comes in with the equipment and the people that could take care of ICU critical care patients en route so I don't have to deplete resources in theater. And I briefed that as a lesson learned. General Carlton was very cordial. We briefed it at Herbert Airfield. I remember where AFSOC is, Air Force Special Operations Command. He came in. He was the 59th Medical Group Commander in uh, San Antonio, which had Keesler, Lackland, and uh, all, all of those medical resources. And he goes, we could fix that. And he created the first provisional critical care aeromedical transport team with a critical care physician, an ICU nurse, a critical care nurse, and a respiratory technician to augment 
the evacuation crews in the Air Force as they were evacuating patients from a theater. He actually developed the first provisional ones for that based on our lessons learned and briefing him. And he did it very rapidly out of his own internal resources. And then he sold that to be a doctoral change in the Air Force to the Surgeon General, who was Lieutenant General Rodman at the time. And then subsequently, General Carlton became the Surgeon General of the Air Force. So he ingrained and expanded that program. And it became, what I was really proud of, it became invaluable when the operations in Afghanistan and Iraq began in early 2000s with contingency operations, because we had to move a lot of critical casualties under very long distance from Afghanistan and Iraq. And we were able to support those casualties during that evacuation. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that with us. You were the Joint Special Operations Task Force Surgeon during Operation Uphold Democracy, a planned invasion of Haiti in 1994 that ultimately was resolved diplomatically. What were you and your team prepared to do? And tell us about some memorable experiences. So what made this operation, this was a year later from the Black Hawk Down incident, Mogadishu. So it's 1994. So the difference is in Somalia, there was already a nation building operation, peacekeeping operation going on with the United Nations with U.S. forces deployed. There was already a hospital, U.S. military hospital there. There was medevac there. There were other things. And the Ranger Task Force was deploying into that environment with its unit to go on its mission. Now we're going to Haiti. There are no U.S. forces there already deployed. There are no U.S. medical resources already there. It was very, what we would say, a raw battlefield, undeveloped. We had to do it from scratch. So what I did as the senior medical person and the task force surgeon for the Joint Mission Commander for um, Operation Uphold Democracy was do all the planning and all the roles of care. Well, one, two, three, four, all the way through. So what we did, since there was going to be an airborne operation and seizure in Haiti in order to uh, conduct operations there, we liaisoned with the 82nd Airborne Division. The division surgeon was then Major Jeffrey Clark, who ended up being retired. He's now retired, Major General uh, Jeff Clark. He was the division surgeon at the time. We liaisoned and gave him a additional surgical element from special operations. They were jumping in and they needed something on the ground to do immediate resuscitation on the airborne op. I set up three afloat joint casualty collection points. One on the USS America with the Joint Task Force Headquarters. And in a hangar bay, we set up a forward surgical team from special operations, JMAL, the Joint Medical Augmentation Unit. We also had the hospital ship USS Comfort as part of the task force, and we coordinated and liaisoned and set up communications with them so they could be prepared to take casualties from the battlefield in Haiti. And then we also set up a surgical element on the USNS Iwo Jima, where a Marine Expeditionary Force was doing an amphibious operation on the northern part of Haiti. At the same time, the 82nd Airborne Division and Special Operations Units were going to jump in for the combat operation. So we set up three afloat joint casualty collection points with surgical capabilities, as well as the surgical team jumping in with the 82nd Airborne Division. My problem was we were at sea and we were in Haiti. We didn't have an airfield. 
We couldn't strategically then evacuate post-op patients, critical care patients, out of the theater back to the United States. So I set up a joint medical task force with resource Army, Navy, and Air Force Medicine at Gitmo, which was part of Cuba, the U.S. military base in Cuba, which was secure. At their airfield, at the end of their airfield with tentage, we set up surgical capability, hospitalization capability, and a what I call a joint military medical task force in which General Carlton placed surgical capabilities from his hospital, San Antonio, as well as those three critical care aeromedical transport teams that he developed to attend patients back to be evacuated back to the United States. And we wanted to use military hospitals in the Southern United States, Southeast. So we used Jacksonville Naval Hospital, Pensacola Naval Hospital, Keesler Air Force Hospital, and at Brook Army Medical Center through the San Antonio capability that was there. And that was our role three, role four evacuation from Haiti. So we had to set up the entire architecture from point of injury all the way through back to evacuation in a theater that had no resources, medical resources previous. And I will tell you, it was very, you know, all separated out. I was in command of that and had responsibility for all the medical coordination, but I certainly was reliant on some very well-trained physicians and medical people to be the OIC and commander, if you will, of each of those organizations at different points, because they had to run the day-to-day activities at those organizations. We all had to come together as a team, communicate with one another, synchronize the medical plan. I got to tell you, that was probably, for me, looking back, uh, that was probably the most fulfilling operational planning and coordination we ever conducted because it included many resources from Army, Navy, and Air Force Medicine that had to all come together. And and that was very fulfilling. And I had great support from the Surgeon's Generals, the military medical infrastructure, from all the services uh, for that, to be able to do that. Well, it sounds like you guys were incredibly prepared. Thankfully, we didn't have to execute that plan and it was resolved diplomatically. Let's fast forward a little bit to when you got promoted to uh, Brigadier General and you served as commander of the 44th Medical Command and also the command surgeon for the 18th Airborne Corps. This was during some heavy activity in OEF and OIF, 2005, 2007. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and uh, maybe some stories or lessons learned? I was never myself or the headquarters while I was in command actually deployed to OIF or OEF. My job was to train mobilized units in the reserve component for deployment to fall under someone else's command in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as all of the units on seven installations that fall within the 44th Medical Command to be detached from me in the United States, deployed and attached someone else's command. So my job was the training and preparation of units, but also the recovery and restoration of units returning from the theater and integrating them back in to their organization. Uh, That was a very difficult job because previously we deployed as whole military medical units. When the 44th deployed, all the units from the 44th deployed with them. Now we didn't deploy as full 
medical units, we deployed as task forces. So they were a hodgepodge of organizations and units from active component and reserve component that had to be detached and attached and all separated out under other chains of commands in their theaters. So I had to lead leaders to operate their organizations and be successful, not under my command. I had to prepare them to operate and succeed under other people's commands and how to integrate in. So that was very rewarding. It was a different style of leadership. It was a different uh, focus for me. And I was busy 24 seven doing that as much as I was training units to deploy with me various times of my career. You were the co-chair of the DOD task force on the prevention of suicide by members of the armed forces. What did you learn about the problem and what can be done to address it? Boy, what an honor that was. I was assigned by the Obama Gates team to be a co-chair on a, I think it was about 14, 14 person task force, half military, half civilian experts in behavioral health, psychological health, the whole subject of suicide and suicide prevention across the spectrum in the United States. They came from all over the civilian personnel and military personnel from all the services. And our job was to study suicide in the military and make recommendations to the services and the Defense Department on what measures they could implement to reduce or mitigate the threat of suicide to members of the armed forces. What I learned, not being, I mean, I'm a family medicine physician, but I was never real, I'm not an expert in suicide prevention. You know, I didn't focus totally on behavioral health my whole career. What I learned from that task force was this is a complex multifactorial problem and issue, and that there was no one solution, that our recommendation would be a broad spectrum of recommendations covering a whole bunch of facets, which all were small measures that add up to a solution for mitigating the threat of suicide. So that was the biggest thing I learned, was there was no easy solution. There was no one solution. So complex that we had to look at this from that aspect. We met for a year and a half, 18 months, and put together our recommendations. The biggest impacts I believe we made were reducing the stigma of people under stress for behavioral health. And I have to share a story with you. Following Mogadishu as a young physician responsible for the medical plan for Mogadishu, where we lost 18 folks and many others were significantly, permanently disabled or affected, I suffered some stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. I had a little problem after we redeployed, focusing, I had a problem sleeping, I had problems communicating with people, I was a little short-tempered, I had problems with anger, and I needed to seek help to help me through that. So I haven't spoken a lot to people about that, but the people that helped me get over that the most were my line commanders who noticed I was not myself, who called me into the office and said, Doc, we want you to realize how invaluable you are on that mission. There's a lot of great Americans walking around today with their family that are walking around because of you and your actions, Mogadishu. That's what helped me get through that and over that, besides the anger management and other things. So I brought that understanding with me to that task force on the prevention of suicide that I could understand post-incident stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, and just depression and people feeling down on themselves when a buddy dies in combat and they didn't feel 
they did their best to save them or did their job, could have saved that person's life. And they go home with these guilt feelings and everything else. So I brought that with me. So it was really important that we reduce the stigma. And I believe that's one of the things we did with all the services that's able for people to openly get assistance today. And then I would say making behavior, access to behavioral health resources more accessible with line commanders. So the combination of those two that I think were the biggest impacts that we had, the area that I believe needs more improvement right now are in the transition, meaning when people PCS or ETS and they lose their connection of the teams they were serving on, we needed to do a better job of tracking them and following them. One of the things I realized, and also as the 44th commander, we spend three to four months when a unit gets alerted that they're going to be deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. We spend three to four months to prep them, prepare them, and train them to deploy to succeed in combat. When they come back, we don't spend three to four months to get them integrated back into society from the high op tempo that they were in when they deployed. We give them time off. We throw them back with their families. We give them their pay. We out-process them. And then we send them out there without truly knowing what they experienced and how that's affecting them and their psyche and getting back with their families, reuniting with their families, reuniting into society again, all of those things. I think we need to spend more time on what I call reintegration, covering and resetting people when they come back. And I think that also adds to the risk of destructive behaviors, which includes suicide. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. I think it's very interesting to understand the leaps and bounds that the military has made over the last 10 years, probably largely because of the initiatives that the senior leaders take in addressing these monumental issues. And we had interviewed a specialist, Dr. Sam Preston, who is a psychiatrist, and he had talked about how in the last 10 years, the stigma of behavioral health had dramatically reduced and that people were able to obtain the mental health support that they needed. So thank you. Oh, no, I mean, you know, you learn these things along the way. And the beauty of the military is we're willing to accept where we can improve upon and make the changes. And that's what the line wants to do. That's what the medical people want to do. And to study a problem and do the best we can to improve upon it. And that is very rewarding. No one brushes it under the table and hopes hope it gets better on their own. So your final assignment in the military on active duty was commanding the AMED Center and School, now known as the Army Medical Center of Excellence. What was the most impactful achievement of the school during your time there of 2012-2013? That's a very special assignment because that was my final year in the 30-year career that I spent in the military. So I was only there for a year, which is kind of hard to come into a place at that level and affect change. So the two things that really stand out to me was using all my operational experience with the phenomenal staff and leaders we had there at the Medical Center of Excellence, the AMED Center and School, of changing two things that would affect the future battlefield. One of them was using a study by a guy named Bob Mabry, Colonel retired Bob Mabry, who was an ER doc who did a study while he was deployed that showed first responders 
particularly flight medics, who were trained as paramedics, had a decreased morbidity and mortality than flight medics that were only basic EMT trained. So I got to help implement the first and, uh, and transition the first paramedic flight surgeons course, where we trained flight surgeons. Not only did they go to the seven-week flight surgery course, but they went to the uh, six-month paramedic course and then eight weeks of critical care training in an ICU to get a greater level of first responder skills for the battlefield to decrease morbidity and mortality. So we implemented that curriculum at the AMED Center and School. Very similar, what we did, that was for helicopter evacuation. Very similar of what we did 15 years earlier with the aeromedical the critical care aeromedical transport teams on the strategic evacuation. We upped the level of training and expertise on the transport of patients in the strategic environment, and now we're doing it in the tactical environment. That just a basic trained flight surgeon alone wasn't sufficient in our contemporary operating environment of the military. So we got to do that. And then the second thing that really comes to mind was training combat medics, changing the curriculum to include the ability to begin blood transfusions at the point of injury as first responders. Previous to that, you had to get to a hospital or a surgical capability before we could begin blood transfusions. And now we moved a greater capability to begin blood transfusions earlier on a battlefield to make severely wounded patients greater survivability when they got into the hands of the surgeons, or I should say more salvageable by the surgeons if their condition was more stable from being able to get a blood transfusion had they lost a lot of blood initially in their combat injury. So those were the two things. You currently serve as a board member on the Senior Advisory Board for the Special Operations Medical Association. Tell us about that organization and how they help military medicine. Yeah, that organization was formed in the 90s, where a bunch of uh, special operations medical folks from the past got together and said, we ought to create our own organization, our own association. So the Special Operations Medical Association was formed, SOMA. And uh, we selected people on the uh, board there and leadership positions and executive director and secretary and all that stuff. And it was in order to communicate and bring lessons learned from special operations missions together so we could share our experiences and improve healthcare for the future with the next generations of special operators. The older guys sharing experience with the younger folks that are starting out. Well, that has been phenomenal in my career because we have Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, special operations, medical personnel, from the three services medical departments that are serving in those units, special mission units, special forces, special tactics squadrons in the Air Force, SEAL teams in the Navy, special boat platoons in the Navy, boat units, rangers. I could go on and on uh, of these special operations organizations. They're each unique, but there's a common thread for care that's given to our patients. As you know, regardless of what uniform you wear, anatomy and physiology doesn't change for our warriors, for our uh, men and women in uniform. So medical care is really more similarities in Army, Navy, Air Force, 
medicine, then there are differences. We tried to leverage that. So that's what that organization is about. It is the center also for recognizing excellence, for assembling lessons learned, for academics and research and special operations, and also for identifying problem areas. And I'll give you an example. The most recent large problem area, which we learned just over 10 years ago through the Special Operations Medical Association, was a term used called prolonged care in the field. Previously, we trained first responders to treat and resuscitate casualties and then call in medevac and get a medevac or evacuated to a higher role of care, a higher level of care, more experienced care, whether that be a casualty collection point or a hospital or wherever, or, or a surgical capability. They got evacuated. Well, operations in some in the Middle East, but many of the ones in Africa we've been involved in in the last 12, 13 years, sometimes you can't get evacuation for 12 hours, for 24 hours, sometimes for two days. What does a first responder do when they have to not only resuscitate a person or treat them, but now they have to hold them and keep them sustained until evacuation could get there a day later? So the new term is prolonged care in the field, and the Special Operations Medical Association are the leaders in military medicine for creating the doctrine and the curriculum for training first responders to do prolonged care in the, in the field. So you also currently serve as chairman of the board of directors for the Society of Federal Health Professionals, also known as AMSIS. What exactly does that organization do and who makes up its membership? Yeah, privilege and honor to serve as the chair of the board of directors for AMSIS. Uh, we have a great board of directors represented from all the federal health agencies and uh, uh, military services, medical departments. And we have a great executive director and staff, a small staff of seven people at AMSIS that work day in and day out to run that association. That association was created by a charter enacted by Congress, the United States, I believe in 1907. So it's been around for a long time the Association of Military Surgeons of the United States. It is the professional organization for military medicine, which translates to operational medicine. It is our professional organization, just like you have the American College of Surgeons, the American Academy of Family Physicians. We have the Association of Military Surgeons of the United States. That is not only for physicians, but it's all healthcare professionals, veterinarians, dentists, preventive medicine personnel, medical service corps officers, nurses, doctors, PAs, and it has been expanded to include all federal health organizations, which includes the VA and the Public Health Service, the Department of Homeland Security, Coast Guard. It includes the White House medical staff. It includes all those federal professionals serving at the federal level, federal organizations serving our nation for our national mission in the United States. And I'm very proud to be the executive director of that. And uh, if you read military medicine, phenomenal research and article on operational medical care and unique medical care for members of the military and federal healthcare professionals that serve our country. And it's our professional organization. Anyone could join. That's a uh, federal health professional. We have a lot of partners in industry, stating members, companies that support us because they have an affinity to support members of the military 
and those who serve our nation. We have uh, also an executive advisory board of large companies who provide resources, speakers, scientific speakers, and other resources. They sponsor speakers at our events, and it's a great partnership, win-win across the United States, all for the purpose of serving our nation. If your family was going to unearth this podcast 100 years from now, what would you want them to hear about your career in military medicine? I would want them to know that the solution for being successful, I believe, not only in the military, but in life, is a term I use to the younger generation all the time. Bloom where you're planted. A lot of times you don't get a choice of where you're going to be or what you're going to do, but you do have a choice of your attitude, your teamwork, being the best doc you can be, and blooming wherever you end up. That's the key to fulfillment and success. And then I'll go back to how I opened this with, there's nothing like spending a career doing honorable work with honorable people. It's a privilege and honor. And so many people invested in me to accomplish the things I did, get to do the things I did, and be where I was on these teams and where I am today, that in my career, you learn that it's your time to give back to the next generation, to invest in them, to take on those duties and become the best they can be in what they do. None of us do this on our own. We're surrounded by people who love us, coach us, mentor us, and develop us, be where we can be and to be the best we can be. So be very open, positive attitude, and anyone could pursue anything they want if they're willing to put in the time and the sacrifices, listen to others and learn. We've been speaking with retired Army Major General, Dr. Philip Volpe. Sir, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs, and thank you for your incredible service to our nation. Uh, thank you so much. Honor and privilege. I hope I was beneficial and useful to other folks out there, and I wish everyone the level of fulfillment that I've enjoyed in my career. I wish that for them, that they could have the same level of enjoyment, sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in their career as I had in mine. God bless. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.